From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hi, this is Tom Rackman. I'm the author of The Imperfectionists, a novel in stories that is set in Rome at an international newspaper there. The particular story I'm going to read to you today is the beginning of the chapter that is entitled World's Oldest Liar Dies at 126, Obituary Writer Arthur Gopal. Now, just to explain, each of the chapters has a title, which is, in fact, a a headline that appears in this little bumbling, fumbling newspaper in Rome. And each of the chapters also tells the story of a different person who works at that paper, or in one case, the reader. So, in this case, we begin with the tale of the obit writer, Arthur Gopal. Arthur's cubicle used to be near the water cooler, but the boss is tired of having to chat with him each time they got thirsty. So the water cooler stayed, and he was moved. Now his desk is in a distant corner, as far from the locus of power as possible, but nearer the cupboard of pens, which is a consolation. He arrives at work, flops into his rolling chair, and remains still. This persists until inertia and continued employment cease to be mutually tenable, at which point he wriggles off his overcoat, flicks on the computer, and checks the latest news reports. Well, no one has died, or rather, 107 people have in the previous minute, 154,000 in the past day, and 1,078,000 in the past week. But no one who matters. That's good. It's been nine days since his last obit, and he hopes to extend the streak. His overarching goal at the paper is indolence, to publish as infrequently as possible, and to sneak away when no one is looking. He's realizing these professional ambitions spectacularly. He opens a manila folder so that, if anyone happens past, he can flutter sheets, peer up irascibly, and mutter, Preparedness! Which seems to put most people off. Not all people, sadly. Clint appears behind him, and Arthur swivels around in his chair, as if twisted by a garrote. Clint, hi, uh, morning. Yeah, no, I, I've I've been over the wires, and uh, there's n- nothing obvious. Not, I mean, not not to me at least. I mean, not 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 so far. He despises this tendency to justify himself so abjectly to his superiors. He should just shut up. Didn't you see it? Um, see what? Are you serious? Clint is a specialist in queries that are at once hectoring and incomprehensible. Don't you read email? Wake up, loser. He raps Arthur's monitor as if it were a skull. Anybody home? Clint Oakley, Arthur's boss, is a dandruff-reigning, baseball-obsessed, sexually resentful Alabamian with a toilet-brush mustache and an inability to maintain eye contact. He's also the culture editor, an ironic posting if considered. Rectum, he says, apparently meaning Arthur, and struts back to his office. Well, if history has taught us anything, Arthur muses, it is that men with moustaches must never achieve positions of power. Sadly, the paper has not heeded this truism because Clint has authority over all special sections, including obituaries. Lately, he has heaped endless chores upon Arthur, ordering him to collate this day in history, brain teasers, puzzle wuzzle, the daily ha-ha, and world weather, in addition to his regular necrological duties. Arthur finds the email Clint was referring to. It's from the editor-in-chief, Kathleen Solson, who wants preparedness, that is, an obituary prepared before the subject dies, on Gerda Erzberger. 
who on earth is that? He checks the internet. She turns out to be an Austrian intellectual, once lauded by feminists, then decried by them, then forgotten. Why should the paper care that she's about to die? Well, because Kathleen happens to have read Erzberger's memoirs while at college, and, as Arthur knows, news is often a polite way of saying editor's whim. Kathleen arrives to discuss the piece. Oh, uh, I'm, I'm working on it right now, he says preemptively. On Gerda? Do you know her personally? If the answer is yes, his assignment assumes fresh peril. Uh, not well, you know, met her a couple of times at events. and So she's not a friend then, he suggests hopefully. Uh, and how urgent would you say this is? Which is to say, when's she planning to die? Unclear, Kathleen responds. She's not having treatment. And is, is that good or bad? Well, it's not typically good with cancer. Listen, I'd like us to do this properly for once, you know, give you enough time to get an interview with her, go up there and so on, rather than just working from clips. Go up where? She lives outside Geneva. You can have the secretaries work out the travel arrangements. Travel. Travel means effort and a night away from home. Bleak. Nothing is worse than Obit interviews. He must never disclose to his subjects what he's researching because they tend to become distressed. And so he claims to be working on a profile. He draws out the moribund interviewee, confirms the facts he needs, then sits there, pretending to jot notes, stewing in guilt, remarking, Extraordinary, and did you really? All the while, he knows how little will make it into print. Decades of a person's life condensed into a few paragraphs, with a final resting place at the bottom of page nine, between Puzzle Wuzzle and World Weather. At this disheartening thought, he sneaks out of the office to fetch his daughter. Pickle, who is eight, emerges from the school. Satchel strap around her throat, arms flat at her sides, pot belly distended, glasses scanning nothing in particular, her untied shoelaces flailing with each step. Antiques? he asks, and she slips her hand into his, squeezing it in affirmation. To Via de Coronari they amble hand in hand. He observes her from above, her tangled black hair, tiny ears, the thick lenses that bend and swell the cobblestones. She babbles softly and snorts with amusement. She's a wonderful nerd, and he hopes that won't change. He'd be distressed if she were cool. It'd be as if his flesh and blood had grown up to be purple. Your aspect, he says, recalls that of a chimpanzee. She is humming softly and offers no response. After a minute, she says, and you remind me of an orangutan. Oh, can't argue with that, he says. No, I cannot argue with that. Oh, by the way, he adds, I have a new one for you. Tina Pachutnik. Say it again? Pachutnik. Tina. She shakes her head. Impossible to say. Well, do you like Tina, at least? Well, I'm willing to consider it. She has been looking for a pseudonym. Not for any purpose, but because it took her fancy. What about Zeus, she asks. Oh, it was taken, I'm afraid, though he has been gone long enough that there'd be little room for confusion. Would you would you use it like that, Zeus on its own, or would it be Zeus something? She opens her pudgy hand within his cool, dry palm, and he releases her. She drifts, stepping over her own feet, beside him but abstracted, apart. Then she swoops back, plunges her fingers into his, and looks up, nostrils swelling with mischief. What? Frog, she says. I forbid it, he says. Frog is a boy's name. 
she shrugs an oddly adult gesture, in such a little girl. They enter one of the opulent antique shops on Via de Coronari. The clerks watch Arthur and Pickle closely. The two of them come here often, never buying, except once when she knocked over a mantel clock and Arthur had to pay for it. She prods a 1920s telephone. Oh, you hold that part to your ear, Arthur explains, and you talk into the other bit. But how do you make a call? He sticks his fingers into the dial and cranks a rotation. Never seen a phone like this before? My God, when I was growing up, this is all we had. Imagine the strife. Hard times, my dear, hard times. She purses her lips and pivots to investigate a bust of Marcus Aurelius. Back home, Arthur prepares her a Nutella sandwich. She eats one every afternoon, legs dangling from the kitchen chair, smudges of chocolate accruing on the underside of her nose. He tears off the crust and pops it into his mouth. Father tax, he explains, chewing. She does not object. When Visantha's car pulls up outside, Pickle hurriedly swallows her last bite and Arthur hastens to rinse off the sticky plate. It's as if a teacher approached. How was work? he asks his wife. Okay, and what are you guys up to? Uh, nothing much. Pickle ambles off to the television room, and Arthur absent-mindedly follows. They chat in there and laugh at their TV show. Visantha trails in. What are you watching? Oh, just some junk, he replies. Pickle hands him the remote and wanders off to her room. He watches her go down the hall, then turns to Visantha. You know what she told me today? She doesn't remember the 20th century. Isn't that terrifying? Not particularly. Uh, what are we doing for dinner? Pickle, he calls down the hall. Any thoughts on dinner? The secretary's book Arthur from Rome to Geneva by rail, a ten-hour journey with connections in Milan and Brig. Supposedly, this saves money on a short-notice flight, but is a colossal nuisance for him. He boards the early train at Stazione Termini, buys pastries in the cafeteria carriage, and, squashed amid the second-class rabble, settles into the first volume of Erzberger's memoirs, which is called, modestly, In the Beginning. From the author photo, Erzberger is, or was, in her early thirties, pretty and gaunt, with shoulder-length dark hair and twisted ironic lips. The picture is from 1965, when the book came out. She must be in her seventies by now. As his train pulls into Geneva in the early evening, he lifts his nose from the book and stares at the seat back before him. From the blurbs on the internet, he had expected a weary, politically dated autobiography. Instead, her prose communicates courage and humanity. He studies her photo again and feels scandalously unprepared. He passes customs, obtains Swiss francs, and finds a cabbie who will take him to her house, which is just across the French border. The taxi drops him on a wet country road. The red taillights disappear down the hill. He's sweaty, uncertain, late. He dislikes being late, yet invariably is. He rubs his hands together, huffs a breath cloud onto them. Yes, this is the place, the right number, the pines, as she described. After a little searching, he finds a gate within the pleached fence and enters. Her home is built of sturdy timber beams, with icicles hanging from the eaves like wizards' caps. He snaps one off he can never resist and turns around to survey the twilight sky. A crust of clouds overlays the Alps. The icicle drips down his wrist. She opens the door behind him. 
Hi, hi, uh, sorry I'm late, he says, then switches to German. Sorry, I, I was just admiring the view. Come in, she says. You can leave the icicle outside, please. The living room is illuminated by potted lights that pick out columns of dust in the air. An ebony coffee table bears an overflowing ashtray and a moonscape of stain rings from hot mugs that spilled. On the walls, African war masks leer. The bookshelves are perfectly stocked from wing to wing, like a residence whose management has ceased accepting new applicants. The room smells of strong tobacco and of hospital, too. Erzberger's hair is short and white, and when she passes under the lights, her scalp is visible. A tall woman, she wears a hand-knitted sweater that hangs loosely around her throat, like a sock that has lost its elastic. For trousers, she has flannel pajama bottoms, and on her feet, sheepskin slippers. The sight reminds him that it is cold. He shivers. What would you like to drink? I'm having tea. Uh, tea would be perfect. So, can I assume, she asks, half turned toward the kitchen, that you're writing my obituary? He's caught out. Oh, he says, uh, why? What do you ask? What are you writing, then? You said on the phone it was a profile. She disappears into the kitchen, returning a minute later with his steaming mug. She places it on the coffee table, motions him to a black leather armchair, and sits on the matching couch, which does not sink to accommodate her as he expects, but holds its shape, as if bearing her upon its palm. She reaches to the table for her cigarette pack and lighter. I, I mean, yes, he admits. It is, it is for that, uh, for an obituary. Is that awful to hear? No, no, I, I rather like it. This way I'll know it's accurate. I won't have a chance to send a letter of complaint afterward, will I? She coughs, covering her mouth with the cigarette pack. She lights one. You? He declines. A lick of smoke slithers from her mouth. Her chest rises, and the thread is yanked back inside. Your German is excellent. I lived in Berlin for, for six years as a teenager. My father was a correspondent there. Oh, yes, right. You're, you're the son of R.P. Gopal, aren't you? I, I am. And you write obituaries? Uh, primarily, yes. Claw your way to the bottom, did you? He responds with a polite smile. Writing for an international newspaper in Rome normally earns him a degree of respect, until, that is, people learn of his beat. She continues, I liked your father's books. What was that one with elephant in the title? She glances at her bookshelf. Oh, yes, Arthur says. He, he was an excellent writer. And do you write as well as he did? Alas, no. He sips his tea and pulls out a notepad and a tape recorder. She crushes her cigarette in the ashtray picks at the stitches on her slippers. More tea? Uh, no, I I'm fine, thank you. He turns on his tape recorder and inquires about the start of her career. She answers impatiently, adding, You should ask me other things. I, I know this is basic. I just need to confirm a few facts. It's, it's all in my books. I know, I'm just... Uh, ask what you want. He holds up a copy of her memoirs. I enjoyed this, by the way. Oh, really? Her face lights up and she takes a quick drag of her cigarette. I'm sorry I had to suffer through the boring thing. Oh, it wasn't boring. I'm bored by it. That's the problem, I suppose, with writing a book about your life. Once you're done, you never want to hear about it again. But it's hard to stop talking about your own life. <laughs>
especially if you're me. She leans forward solicitously. Parenthetically, Mr. Gopal, I, I do like obituaries, and I didn't mean to sound as if I was denigrating your work. I mean, you didn't take it that way. No, no, no. Good. That makes me feel better. Now, listen, when do I get to read this piece? Oh, you, you, you don't, I'm afraid. It's, it's, it's against our rules. Otherwise, you know, everyone would demand to edit this bit or that. I'm, I'm sorry. Pity. How entertaining it would be to know how I'll be remembered. The single article I'd most like to read is the one I never can. Oh, well. She weighs the cigarette pack in her hand. People must grow terribly upset when you turn up with a notepad. No? Like the undertaker arriving to measure the dowager. Well, I, I hope it's not that bad. Although, in truth, most people don't realize what I'm researching. And Anyway, I'm, I'm relieved that I, I don't have to pretend tonight, he says. It makes life a great deal easier for me. But does it make death a great deal easier for me? He attempts a laugh. Ignore me, she says. I'm only playing with words. In any case, I'm not afraid of it, not in the least. Can't dread what you can't experience. And the only death we experience is that of other people. That's as bad as it gets, and that's bad enough, surely. I remember when, for the first time, a dear friend of mine died. Must have been, what, 1947? It, it was Walter. He's, he's in the book, the one who's always wearing his waistcoat to bed, if you remember. He got sick, and I abandoned him in Vienna, and he died. I had a terror of illness. I was, I was petrified by, by, by what? Not of getting sick and dying. Even then, in an elementary way, I understood what death was at its worst. Something that happens to other people. And that is hard to bear. That is what I couldn't face back then with Walter. What I've never been good at. But my point, you see, is that, that death is misunderstood. The, the loss of one's life is not the greatest loss. It's, it's no loss at all. To, to others, perhaps, but not to oneself. From one's own perspective, experience simply halts. From one's own perspective, there is no loss, you see? Yet, maybe this is a game of words, too, because it doesn't make it any less frightening, does it? She sips her tea. What I really fear is time. That's the devil, whipping us on when we'd rather lull. So the present sprints by, impossible to grasp, and all is suddenly past. A past that won't hold still, that slides into these inauthentic tales. In my past, it doesn't feel real in the slightest. The person who inhabited it, it isn't me. It's as if the present me is constantly dissolving. There's that, you know that line in Heraclitus, no man steps in the same river twice, for it is not the same river and he is not the same man. Well, that's quite right, you know. We enjoy this illusion of continuity and we call it memory, which explains, perhaps, why our worst fear isn't the end of life, but... The end of memories. She considers him searchingly. Do I make sense? Does that seem reasonable? Mad? Oh, I hadn't thought of it that way before, he says. You probably have a point. It's an extraordinary fact. Don't you find it striking? The personality is constantly dying and it feels like continuity. Meanwhile, we panic about death, which we cannot ever experience. Yet it is this illogical fear that motivates our lives. We gore each other and mutilate ourselves for victory and fame, as if these might swindle mortality and extend us somehow. And then, then as death bears down, we agonize over how little we have achieved. I mean, my own life, for example, has been so inadequately realized. I'll scarcely be recorded anywhere, except, of course, in your eccentric newspaper. And I won't question why you've chosen me. Thank God someone has. 
extends the lease on my illusions. Oh, that, that's much too modest. Nothing to do with modesty, she retorts. Who reads my books any more? Who's heard of me at this stage? Well, me for one, he lies. Oh dear, listen to me, she goes on. I say that ambition is absurd, and yet I remain in its thrall. It's like being a slave all your life, then learning one day that you never had a master, and returning to work all the same. Can you imagine a force in the universe greater than this? Not in my universe. You know, e even from earliest childhood it dominated me. I, I longed for achievements, to be influential, that in particular, to sway people. This has been my religion, the belief that I deserve attention, that they are wrong not to listen, that, that those who dispute me are fools. Yet, no matter what I achieve, the world lives on, impertinent, indifferent. I know all this, but I can't get it through my head. It is why, I suppose, I, I agreed to talk to you. To this day, I'll pursue any folly to make the rest of you shut up and listen to me, as you should have from the start. She coughs and reaches for a fresh cigarette. Here's a fact. Nothing in all civilization has been as productive as ludicrous ambition. Whatever its ills, nothing has created more. Cathedrals, sonatas, encyclopedias. Love of God was not behind them, nor love of life, but the love of man to be worshipped by man. She leaves the room without explanation, and her heaving coughs are audible, muted by a closed door. She returns. Look at me, she says. No children, never a husband. I reach this stage of my life, Mr. Gopal, with the most comical realization that the only legacy is genetic material. I always disdained those who made children. It was the escape of the mediocre to substitute their own botched lives with fresh ones. Yet today I rather wish I'd born a life myself. All I have is one niece, an officious girl, I shouldn't really call her a girl, she's going grey, who looks at me as if as if through the wrong end of a telescope. and She comes in here every week with gallons of soup, 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 and an entourage of doctors and nurses and husbands and children to look me over one last time. You know, there's that silly saying, we're born alone and we die alone. It's complete nonsense. We're surrounded at birth and surrounded at death. It's in between that we're alone. Erzberger has veered so far off topic that Arthur is unsure how to lead her back without appearing rude. She herself, from the industry of her smoking, seems to sense that this is not what he came for. Uh, can I use your bathroom? He closes the door after himself, rolls his shoulders, consults his watch. It's already so much later than he'd wanted. He must get some usable quotes. Nothing she has said will work, but the task feels insurmountable. All he wants is another career, one that pays him to make Nutella sandwiches and cheat at Monopoly with Pickle. He checks his cell phone, which is set on silent mode. It shows 26 missed calls. 26? That, that can't be right. Normally he doesn't get 26 calls in a week. He checks again. But yes, 26 calls in the past hour. The first three are from home. The remainder are from Visantha's mobile. He steps from the bathroom. Uh, sorry, I, I have to make a call. Excuse me. He goes out onto the porch. Erzberger smokes on the leather couch, hearing the murmur of his conversation, but not the sense of it. His talking stops, but he does not come back in. 
She stubs out her cigarette, lights a new one. She swings open the front door. What's going on? Not even on the phone anymore. What are you doing out there? Are we finishing this interview or not? Where's my bag? What? He walks past her into the living room. Do you know where my bag is? No. Why? Are you leaving? What are you doing? She shouts after him. He doesn't even close the front door after himself. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.